I think one of the worst feelings that you can have is when you feel like you're invisible to the rest of the world. There are many people who would love just to be recognized, to be valued, to be people that are considered worthy of love. Many people have felt this way down through the course of history. And it seems as though Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and later the book of Acts, concentrates on those people who seem invisible to other people. And in the Gospel of Luke, some of these people are given the spotlight. Because one of the things that Luke is trying to do is to give to us the impression of inclusion of all people from all walks of life, all different social strata, all different types of outlooks and needs and gifts. And so today, we want to take a look at one group of people that have been overlooked through the course of history. And the way I'd like to begin is first with a quote. There is a writer by the name of Ralph Ellison who wrote a book called Invisible Man. Listen closely. He writes, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and uh, bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me, like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus shows. It is though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invincibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact. A matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. I'm not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. Then, too, you're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision. This beautiful piece of writing was written by Ralph Ellison, born on March the 1st, 1913. There's a picture of him on the screen. He was an American writer, a literary critic, and a scholar best known for this novel, The Invisible Man. And he was speaking of what it was like to be a black man at the beginning of the 20th century. And the words that he wrote are not only true of black men and women, but also of all women of all ages. When people look through an individual and don't see the actual person. Two days after his birth, there was something that occurred in American history. And 
It was a fight for equality among women in the suffrage march in Washington on March the 3rd, 1913. Take a look at this. On arriving in the Capitol for his first inauguration on this date in March 1913, the president-elect, Woodrow Wilson, was disappointed to find so few well-wishers at Union Station or on the streets. Where, Wilson asked, are the people? Oh, he was told, they are out watching the suffrage parade. The demonstration that day, this date, was enormous and chaotic. Angry men taunted the marchers and tried to break their ranks. The Baltimore American reported that the suffragists practically fought their way foot by foot up Pennsylvania Avenue through a surging throng that completely defied Washington police. Only the arrival of cavalry troops from Fort Myer, the army base across the Potomac, brought a semblance of order to the day. In a small meeting in the East Room later that month with Alice Paul, a leading advocate for suffrage, and seven of her colleagues, President Wilson refused to take up their cause. The fact that the fight for the right to vote had been waged for seven decades, since really the founding convention of the movement at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, did not impress Wilson. I do not care to enter into a discussion of that, the president told his visitors, ending the conversation. It was not then an auspicious beginning, but the White House meeting was only that, a beginning. After she left the East Room, Alice Paul headquartered herself on Lafayette Square, and launched a persistent campaign of protest at Wilson's doorstep. Born in 1885 to a distinguished Quaker family in Pennsylvania, Paul had been influenced by the more militant British suffrage movement. If arrested, the suffragists, including Paul, would refuse food in jail, leading to highly publicized, painful force feedings. The gruesome details of prison officials jamming tubes carrying milk and mush through the protesters' nostrils turned public opinion against the authorities. The roots of the long campaign to extend the vote and equal protection to women are older even than the Republic. A few months before the Second Continental Congress broke decisively with Great Britain, John Adams was at work in Philadelphia when he received an engaging letter from his wife, Abigail. I long to hear that you have declared an independency, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors, Mrs. Adams wrote. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. At Seneca Falls in July of 1848, a women's rights convention brought about by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, among others, issued a Declaration of Rights and Sentiments that sanctified the movement's creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. Susan B. Anthony, an essential figure, echoed the point down the years. It was we the people, not we the white male citizens, nor yet we the male citizens, but we the whole people who formed the union she said in 1873. And we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them, not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women as well as men. Through the years, by fits and starts, and in good times and bad, the work went on. 
The climactic drama came after the parade that was held on this date in the Wilson years when Alice Paul, focused on the ratification of the 19th Amendment, kept the pressure on. Demonstrators were known as silent sentinels, and they stood outside the White House every day. For the first time in American history, the historian Gene H. Baker wrote, an organized group of dissidents, not just a single individual like Henry David Thoreau, had employed passive resistance and civil disobedience in a direct confrontation with presidential authority. And with the passage of the 19th Amendment, it worked. So what I have done is I've given you two illustrations. The writing of the novel Invisible Man, here's a black man who is not being seen as a human being, and he was born two days prior to this march where women had to march on Washington for the right to vote. That's what suffrage means. It seems as though through the course of our history there have been both men and women that have been invisible to other people. And it's built upon a long prejudice that goes back millennia. For when you come to both Old Testament and New Testament, you find a very patriarchal outlook. And what you find is that women are often pushed down and suppressed, their opinions ignored in the Old Testament, there's an accounting of many women who had been raped, many women who had been tortured. It got a little bit better into the New Testament, but even there you have a patriarchal world where women are told to sit down and be quiet. Don't speak up. Don't say anything. So what we want to do is build upon that passage of scripture I just read for you out of the Gospel of Luke. And there's a phrase that Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? What a powerful question. Do you see this woman? It's a question that can be asked over and over and over again. Do you see another person as your brother and sister within the human race? Do you see other people full of potential and promise and gifts? Do you see other people as brothers and sisters within the family of God? If not, what's blinding us? What is it that's covering our eyes that does not allow us to see other human beings who have the right to be respected and loved. You know, there's several different outlooks in the Bible. One is the Jewish outlook in the Old Testament into the New Testament. Here's a couple of things that are interesting. In ancient Judaism, women were considered important only to the extent that they impacted the lives of men. Josephus, an ancient historian, said that the testimony of women should not be allowed in court. Others said things like this, that there would be moments in their own lives where they would get up in the morning and pray to God. And this is an actual prayer that was prayed. 
Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Can you imagine? When you look at all the names that you find in the Bible, there are over 1,700 different names mentioned in the scriptures. But only 137 of them are women. The rest are all men. So, it's always been as though men were the gatekeepers. Stay in the background, do your job. And a lot of people go to clobber texts to try to tell women to sit down and be quiet and just do the supportive role of putting a meal on the table and having kids. That is something that is terrible because that was never God's design. Both men and women are equally created in the image of God. And so what happened was after all these millennia of oppressing women, there arose in the late 60s, early 70s, feminism where women began to push back on that. And they said that they were deserving of respects and rights and responsibilities. And here, in this, you see the suffrage march on Washington. And it would take a while before the 19th Amendment would be passed in our Constitution to allow women a right to vote. Even today, it is apparent that women are not regarded with great value just by the way they are treated within society. The Pew Research Center shows that women still make only between 80 and 84 percent of what a man makes doing the same job. Regarding violence and harassment against women, the United Nations said that about 741 million women around the world are victims of some type of abuse and violence every year. In the United States, it is estimated that one out of every six women have been assaulted. And yet, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? So on the whole, patriarchy is not God's dream for humanity. And Jesus illustrates it. Jesus loved women and treated them as equal. He listened to them. He did not belittle them. He honored them. He challenged them. He taught them, and he included them. The poet Maya Angelou once said, There is no agony like bearing an untold story inside of you. So over the centuries, women have borne the burden of silence due to suppression. But when the gospel of Luke was written, Luke wanted to highlight women. He wanted to tell us as a storyteller that invisible women were made visible. So what does he do? He tells us that women were the first one at the cradle and the last ones at the cross. He tells us women were the ones who first witnessed the resurrection. He tells us in his gospel that they matter. Jesus is a man who took their questions, their arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, 
but to allow them to discover their great potential. Jesus is a man who didn't have an axe to grind against women and no fragile male dignity to defend. And so what Luke does is he weaves together a number of stories. And these stories are not found in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are unique to to Luke. He tells us about how Peter's mother-in-law is sick and that Jesus heals his mother-in-law. He tells us that there's this woman who is grieving because she had lost her son and he raises this boy from the dead. He talks about a woman who had been hemorrhaging and bleeding for 12 years. She was an outcast in the community because she was considered unclean and he heals her. And then on a Sabbath, he saw a crippled woman. And to the chagrin of the Pharisees, those who wanted to protect Torah law, he heals her, she gets up and she walks and they freak out because he does that which is good on a day that's forbidden to do those type of things. Luke is quite amazing, but I want to highlight a couple of different things this morning and the time we have before we take communion together. In Luke chapter 8, it says this in the first three verses. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, the twelve male disciples, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women, listen to this line, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is fascinating. There are three women that are mentioned, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. And the most famous of those three is Mary Magdalene. She comes from an area called Magdala. It's a territory up around the Sea of Galilee. And she is an individual that takes kind of center stage. She's the first one that sees the resurrected Christ and runs back to tell the male disciples that the tomb is empty. Then there's this woman, Joanna. She's the wife of Cusa, which is a political figure who uh, she would get into some great trouble probably, but she doesn't care. She recognizes the love of Christ and here's a woman of social status and of power and of financial means because of who she's married to. And then lastly, Susanna, we don't know anything about. We just don't know anything about her. But this last line is incredible. How did Jesus pay for his earthly ministry? Have you ever thought of that? So he travels around doing good works, teachings, and healings. How did he pay for it? I mean, the disciples, most of them fishermen, left their vocation to follow him, right? The text tells us here that he had strong support financially from women. And they gave out of their means, which wasn't great, but I think these three women probably represent a larger grouping of women that said what Jesus is doing is setting us free and giving us liberty and giving us love. 
and they helped support him in his earthly ministry. So we also looked at this woman who comes in at dinner time, uninvited guest, and she comes up to Jesus and her life had been hard. She was a woman that found herself on the streets trying to make ends meet. The Pharisees, this religious group, didn't want anything to do with people that were the outcasts and the outliers and the people that were sinful and the people that were shady. No, no, we're too holy for that. We're dedicated to God. But Jesus not only reached out to them, he allowed them to touch him. And this woman, who's called a sinner, a woman of the streets, possibly a prostitute, is allowed not only in the presence of Jesus, but Jesus allows her to kiss him and anoint him. For she breaks open an alabaster jar of perfume, and what we find is that everybody's upset that she's wasting all of this potential money, pouring it at the feet of Jesus and upon the head of Jesus. But Jesus said, do you not recognize what she's doing? And then he tells a parable. He says, there's these two people that were really in debt, and each person they owed money to forgave them that debt. One had a little bit amount of money, one owed a lot of money. And Jesus looks to Simon the Pharisee and says, which of them do you think is more appreciative? Well, Simon uses his logic and deduction. He says, well, of course, the one who has been forgiven the greater amount of money, right? And he says, do you see this woman? She had a hard life. She's made a lot of mistakes. Her choices were poor. But she recognizes something you don't, Simon, in her humility. She saw that she needed my love and forgiveness. And she comes in and she's weeping. And it's there that Jesus says to her, your sins are what? Forgiven. They're forgiven. Forget about them. Get up. Make on with your life. Live in the freedom and love that I'm giving to you here this day. That would really tick off Simon, wouldn't it? That would tick off the other Pharisees, wouldn't it? She doesn't know her place. She should stay in the background. She doesn't know her place that her life choices should excommunicate her from any place near you, Jesus. That's not Jesus. He brings her in and holds her and what we find is this woman, this dear woman, found something maybe that the invisible women in our societies are still looking for today. Unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, and forgiveness. So here Luke is emphasizing these women. I'm going to tell you one more. It's in chapter 10. It's a little bit different type of story, but again, it's a spotlight upon the women that we find in the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus has just sent out different people into different villages to proclaim the good news, and at the end of chapter 10, it's just a short little paragraph, it says this, in chapter 10, 
verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples, which includes women, as we saw earlier, were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Okay, let's set the stage here for a moment. You have two sisters, and what we know about Mary and Martha from John's gospel, they have a brother named Lazarus too, okay? And Mary and Martha were friends of Jesus, close friends of Jesus. And Jesus comes into the village where they live, and he comes with his disciples, his entourage of male and female disciples. They call, come into the house, and, and Martha is the busy beaver. She's the Betty Crocker, you know, that is wanting to make sure everything is set, that the meal is prepared, that uh, everything looks perfect and in its place for Jesus and his disciples. So she's working away, and she's slaving to make dinner for this crowd that has stepped into her home. And then here's her sister, Mary. And Jesus sits down, and Mary, who's helping Martha, goes over to Jesus and sits at his feet and is listening to his stories. And Martha gets so PO'd, she said, Jesus, tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. Now listen to what Jesus says to Martha. It's almost like, Martha, 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 you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha's all worried about supper. Mary's worried about Jesus. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, what we're told, and I'll tell you this in a different message that's coming later, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and Jesus already knows that he's going to die. I must go to Jerusalem, he says. Mary takes the opportunity to sit with Jesus at his feet. To spend some time with him because maybe she knew in the back of her mind that all these religious leaders are already out to get Jesus, right? Things don't look good. And so Martha is doing a wonderful thing, but you know what she's doing? She's doing what's expected of her within that culture. Just make dinner and serve it. Martha, uh, Mary, though, chooses to go kind of against the cultural grain. And what she chooses to do is to embrace the relationship that she has with Jesus. Now, Jesus will disappoint Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John account because their brother Lazarus dies. 
And Jesus is not there when he passes away, and they both run up to him, and you can read this in John chapter 11, and they said, if you would have been here, he would not have died. And the shortest verse in your New Testament is found in John chapter 11, verse 35. When Jesus gets into the village, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, I find that ironic because the next thing he does is he raises Lazarus from the dead, but yet he, he is so emotionally connected to Mary and Martha that he weeps in the presence of Mary and Martha because their brother has passed away. There's that emotional bond. You see, there's something about that sinful woman and there's something about Mary and there's something about the group of women that are supporting Jesus' earthly ministry that they are not going to let go of. And that is the love of God expressed through Christ. And they just won't let go of it. They're going to hold tight to it because they had found no other love as great as a love of his. Do you see this woman, Jesus said? And then he says to Martha, do you see Mary? She's doing the better thing. The relationship is far greater than the meal. Okay? So here what we have going on is a setup for communion. When we come on a monthly basis, we celebrate communion the first Sunday of each month. What we do is we recognize that this bread and cup that we partake in is another invitation to step into a closer relationship with Christ. And it's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves that Jesus did everything necessary for us to feel God's love and presence through him. And so he takes a piece of bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body that's given for you. He takes a cup and he pours it, and he says, this is the blood poured out for you. And these two wonderful elements are elements that describe how much God loves each and every one of us here, that he wants us to be in communion with him, to be in a close relationship with him. Luke highlights that in these women pericopes. But here, when he establishes the Lord's table, we often think it's just with the men disciples, right? Because of the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci. It's all men and they all line up on one side of the table. <laughs> that type of thing, right? But what I think is happening is there is a mixture of men and women that are gathered around Jesus. And he takes what is common, a piece of bread and a cup, just to show how much he loves each and every one of us. Perhaps you have struggled with really understanding how much God loves you. The Bible tells us God is love. So the best thing that God does is love, right? And when we forget it and our eyes get clouded, we need to come once again and be reminded. And that's why communion is so important. 
It's that moment in time where we take a break from all the other distractions around us and we remind ourselves of God's love. The kingdom of God is a glimpse of the true manhood and womanhood that he had designed from the very start without fear or stereotypes or abuses in the world. The kingdom of God is an about face. It has eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. So I mentioned earlier about the book Invisible Man. There's also a book called Invisible Woman, and I close with this quote. Caroline Serrato Perez says this, One of the most important things to say about the gender gap is that it is not generally malicious or even deliberate, quite the opposite. It is simply the product of a way of thinking that has been around for millennia and is therefore a kind of not thinking. When we exclude half of humanity from the production of knowledge, we lose out on potentially transformative insights. I think that's good, don't you? So we come to the table. It is made ready for those of us who love Jesus and for those of us who are still learning about him. So come, you who have much faith and those of you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you, because it is the Lord that was bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our sorrows. Come, it is his will that those who want him should meet him in this intimate moment of taking the bread and cup.